0: This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, JOY. Keep JOY on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. JOY, a diverse sound for a diverse community.
1: Welcome to The Informer. Australia's most diverse news and current affairs program. I'm your host, Gavin Hyde. Several months ago, we reported on a bill introduced into New South Wales Parliament by One Nation state leader, Mark Latham, that would ban discussions of gender diversity in schools without expressed parent consent. Under the bill, school staff would also not be allowed to affirm trans kids' gender. The proposed bill has taken a significant step towards becoming law, after it was recommended to Parliament by the committee tasked with reviewing the proposals. Significant concerns have been raised about the panel's integrity, however, as it was chaired by Mark Latham. The Greens have declared their outright opposition to the bill, but the Labor Party is yet to take a stance. Ryan Samble has more on the developments.
2: Mark Latham's anti trans education bill has been endorsed by the committee tasked to review it. The Education Legislation Amendment Bill, also known as the Parental Rights Bill, was proposed by One Nation's New South Wales leader Mark Latham last year and was subject to a review by New South Wales Parliament's Education Committee. The bill would, among other things, force teachers to tell a student's parents if they come out as trans. Ban trans kids from participating in sports teams matching their gender, and prevent any discussion at school about gender or sexuality without first getting a parent's consent. Last week, the committee released its report on the legislation, and all but two of the committee's members endorsed the bill. One of those dissenting voices was David Shoebridge, a Greens MP in New South Wales Legislative Council. He says he rejected the bill for a number of reasons. Well, I fundamentally rejected the bill um, because I listened to the evidence. I listened to the educators, I listened to the academics who actually have a body of work, I listened to the voices of young people, and they all said that this bill was an appalling abuse. The review process for this bill has also garnered some criticism. Mark Latham, who originally wrote and proposed the bill, was also the chair of the committee reviewing it, which gave him pretty broad powers over the review. David believes there are serious concerns about the legitimacy of the review. It's pretty hard to imagine a more direct conflict of interest than chairing the very committee that's reviewing your own bill. And to the extent he didn't want to hear diverse voices, he just refused to call them and recall them as witnesses. What's more, even those voices heard by the committee weren't necessarily listened to. Even though voices opposed to the bill were heard in the committee hearings, the final report failed to cite many of these voices. One such voice was Carly Henderson, a parent of school-aged children, including her trans daughter. She says the voices of people like herself were simply excluded from the final report.
3: The evidence that was coming from people who had experience with either supporting trans people or in fact were trans themselves or, or even educators seemed to be left out of that report.
2: And the evidence from people like Carly is important. As the parent of children in school, she is one of the people this bill is supposed to be for. The original rationale for the bill was to give parents more of a say in what their kids are being taught in schools. However, Carly says there simply isn't convincing evidence that this is a widespread concern among parents.
3: There's a couple of anecdotal mentions of Mark Latham bumping into people in the street who bring up issues of their children being indoctrinated, but there certainly doesn't seem to be any hard evidence that actually suggests that's happening in schools. Certainly isn't my experience.
2: Carly worries that this bill is less about empowering parents' control over their children's education and more about erasing trans kids. She also says this is a problem for all parents and worries that cisgender kids, like her son, will not learn about the world as it really is.
3: I don't want him to grow up in a space where he thinks that's all that exists. He is going to have to go out into the world. He is going to discover Trans people exist, they're very real, and as a result, trans kids exist as well. And I would much rather that there be a safe learning environment where these things are at least brought up, at least discussed. He has the opportunity to ask the questions he needs to in a safe environment so that he's not accessing the information, you know, just by watching TikTok videos and, and on Snapchat.
2: Other evidence given to the committee pointed out the bill's vague wording and argued that it would have quite dramatic consequences. For instance, in its current form, the bill has no answer to what should be done when parents disagree on what children should be taught. The bill also doesn't make an exception for when students ask questions about topics to which parents have already objected. Ghassan Kasasia is the Legal Director of Equality Australia and gave evidence at the hearings. He told the committee that because of the way the bill was written, it could prevent teachers taking action against bullying.
4: I don't think this was intended by the bill, but because it's so poorly put together, um, that it would allow a parent to object to a teacher about their child receiving an instruction, that they don't bully another student because the parent supports views that are homophobic or transphobic or racist even. I mean, it could be anything.
2: Because this bill aims to give parents such broad powers over their children's education, Gassan says it risks contradicting the basic principles behind education in Australia.
4: In New South Wales we have a curriculum, the curriculum um, exposes children to ideas, not all of those ideas they will agree with, and that's okay, and that's actually what education's about. It's about confronting ideas that you don't necessarily agree with and and teasing out whether you do or don't agree and, and the evidence for it.
2: The New South Wales Education Committee heard evidence from dozens of academics, advocates and representative groups. However, throughout these two days of hearings, only one trans person was heard. Teddy Cook is the Director of Community Health and Wellbeing at ACON and the Vice President of AusPath, and part of the evidence he gave to the committee was about current health outcomes for trans kids. Teddy says that even without this bill, trans kids already face a number of barriers at school, and he points to the most recent Writing Themselves In survey of LGBTQIA plus
5: youth. Less than a third. Of trans participants felt that they could safely use a bathroom, and a quarter said that they could safely use a change room, changing rooms in secondary school. Um, less than a half of trans participants reported that LGBTQ people um, had ever been discussed at school. So, what we're seeing is trans kids not feeling like they can be themselves at school at the same time as the vast majority don't ever hear anything about who they are or the communities that they're a part of in school.
2: Teddy says the proposed bill is a massive problem for trans kids and adults precisely because it would make all of these problems worse.
5: I think um, this particular piece of possible legislation and policy change positions trans people as a problem as not existing to begin with, even though we always have. We've always been here. We're not new, um, uh, but we are heavily pathologised and treated as a problem to fix rather than the gift that
2: we are. However, for all the danger this bill presents, it is still a long way from becoming law, and it faces strong opposition from within the New South Wales Parliament. David Shoebridge says the Greens party are committed to opposing the bill at every stage, New South Wales Labor MP Anthony D'Adam, the only other dissenting voice on the Education Committee report, says the Labor Party does not have a firm party position on this bill, but that he will advocate the Labor opposes the legislation in its entirety. And while that's a start, Teddy Cook hopes to see more politicians from across the spectrum stand against the legislation.
5: My hope is that all sides of Parliament comprehensively reject every part of this bill and report.
2: This is Ryan Samble for The Informer.
3: You're listening to The Informer on JOY 94.9. Missed an episode? Listen back to The Informer podcast at joy.org.au forward slash The Informer or search JOY 94.9 The Informer on your favourite podcast
5: platform.
1: Conversations around the corporatisation of pride surround most pride marches and festivities these days and the recent Manchester Pride was no exception. However, with the march being dropped in preference for smaller, ticketed events on the pretext of COVID and the cessation of funding for LGBT support services, community members launched a countermarch to bring attention to these issues. Shannon Cole spoke with the countermarch organisers.
0: It seems like every year when Pride rolls around, a conversation starts about what Pride stands for now and if we've strayed too far from the protests that the march is rooted in. This was an issue that came to a head in Manchester this year, when a counter-protest was organised to raise concerns about how the official Pride march was being conducted. I spoke to John Proctor, organiser of Manchester Pride protest, about what motivated him.
4: You know, obviously I kind of got involved with with the gay scene and the gay community up here um, and LGBT LGBT events in Manchester and obviously Pride's a kind of big one of those. and for the last few years, uh, a few friends and I have kind of been a bit uneasy about how corporate Manchester Pride has become and um how they've been handling some of the the events and things around it and really, this year that's that's kind of came to a point where I felt I needed to to do something about it and organize a protest um and what started off with, with was was just going to be kind of me and a few friends um walking around town has actually turned into something quite big um. So what's what's kind of led to that specifically is that it kind of started off um a couple of months ago when um Manchester Pride announced that they were counseling the parade, citing COVID regulations and they were going to do a couple of smaller equality marches, but they, they were still very happy to organise the ticketed for paid paid event and a few friends and I kind of felt that was was not the right decision so it was that that was kind of initially started me thinking about getting a protest together um and then subsequently it it kind of came out that um, Manchester Pride were withdrawing funding from uh, two of the big LGBT charities in Manchester, the LGBT Foundation, who provide a range of services to LGBT people. They provide support, um, safer sex packs, support for trans people, and they, you know, they do direct work supporting people, and also from the George House Trust, who are a charity who support people living with HIV AIDS. Um, and for a lot of us, that's very personal, you know, we. You know, I've I've used services of LGBT Foundation. I I've had a friend who was in crisis a few years ago and used the George House Trust. So, you know, this is this is very personal to people. Um, and we we a lot of people felt that it was really the wrong thing for Manchester Pride to be doing to withdraw funding from them. You know, they're a multi-million pound event, and uh, their CEO earns a hundred thousand pounds a year. Um, and to say that you don't have enough money for um lgbt charities when you've spent 150,000 pounds on pr and marketing um you know for a lot of people i think felt felt you know betrayed by that quite frankly so there's been a lot of um frustration and anger in the community with them and it's it's really that that's led led up to the protest that happened on saturday um and, you know, on top of that, there's there's kind of other issues with the village be, being gated off. So the village, the gay village is Manchester's kind of main, main gay area um, known as Canal Street and the, the kind of area around it. And at Pride, it's kind of gated off with access. And there's been problems with security guards um, not allowing people through, despite it being a, a kind of public right of way. And, you know, what does what does this tell young people and what does it say about our, our community when you can't get into the heart of heart of the LGBT community over, over Pride without, without a wristband? Um, so, yeah, it, that, those things and, and kind of more are really what led to the, the protest on Saturday.
0: We also spoke to John from Manchester Pride Protest about their concerns regarding the commercialisation of Pride and what issues he sees with that.
4: I think from certainly from Manchester's perspective, there's there's two big issues. There's a very big focus on the festival and a lot of money goes into making that happen. And as I say, I think it's problematic to invest that much money and to not put it into charity and into the community. And, you know, there's very big corporate sponsors around around this and I think more questions need to be asked of those corporate sponsors in terms of, you know, what are they delivering for pride and what are they delivering for the community? Um, you know, one of the sponsors for Manchester pride is Virgin Atlantic and in the UK, they're involved with, um, deporting refugees. Um, and obviously that includes deporting, um, LGBT people who, who haven't had their, um, asylum, um, applications approved. So, you know, um, that's that's really problematic what what are they doing um what are they doing supporting pride when they're one of the people who are who are kicking some of the most vulnerable people in our community out of the country back to where they're going to be harmed or even killed um but also I think the other problem with um big companies in pride is that a lot of people feel that it it pushes them out and it pushes the community out um you know until until this year the parade has been led for many years by large companies and big floats. And if people want to walk in the parade, they have to apply for limited wristbands through a limited number of community groups. And you know, that's that's really wrong. Pride isn't about companies, it's it's about all of us. It's it's about the entire community and the diversity of our community. And if there are going to be companies and if they are going to be there at Pride, they should be there in the supporting role. They should be, you know, at the back of the parades. They should be providing financial support for the community groups so that they can have nice big floats. They shouldn't be the ones leading it, I think. That's that's my personal opinion on that. You know, um, a, a lot of people felt that the the protests um, on Saturday took Pride back to what they wanted it to be and how they wanted it to feel, that community feeling of of being together and being supported and, and being there for each other.
0: In response to concerns raised by the community, Mark Fletcher, Chief Executive of Manchester Pride, said, like many other charities, we've had to take some tough decisions as we focus on recovery. Manchester City Council said it would work with the LGBT Foundation and Manchester Pride. To ensure the continued survival of the Safer Sex Pack scheme. And Paul Wheeler, Chair of Trustees for Manchester Pride, said, We're keen to find ways to continue supporting the vital work of the LGBT Foundation and George House Trust. In 2021, despite being unable to deliver a physical festival in 2020, we still gave both organisations, LGBT Foundation and George House Trust, £10,000 each. That was Shannon Colley with The Informer.
1: As always, if you have any comments, feedback, or story ideas, please get in touch with us, either via email, theinformer at joy.org.au, or on our Facebook and Twitter. And you can catch up on episodes at any time. Just search The Informer, Joy 94.9 on your podcast app. We'll see you at the same time next week.